All right. Well, good evening, beloved orchestra. You're excused. And welcome to tonight's question and answer service. And we're just so glad that you're with us tonight. We are, of course, live on the radio and Facebook. Now, what I've been doing while pastor was in the deacon meeting, I thought I'd be a good staff member. And I went around and asked a bunch of people to get questions ready for pastor at the end. Amen. So we'll just do rapid fire so all of you have your tough questions. We'll ask them live. Would that be all right? Okay, maybe not. We'll just keep going. <laughs> well, we are glad that you're with us tonight. Don't worry. We're going to record this. It'll also be on Sermon Audio page or the website, I should say, and you can download it. And what I found is a lot of questions come up uh, that people have, and we actually answer, he'll answer these. And like alcohol gets brought up a lot. And I'll say, hey, go back and listen to question and answer. And then there's other uh, hot topics that they've talked about that we can go back. And, of course, eventually we'll also play these on the pastor's study. So we'll get right into it right away. And let's go ahead and start with question number one. What is the difference between an elder and a deacon? Well, that's a wonderful question. So it's important to understand that elders and deacons are both biblical offices of a local church. So they are God-ordained positions in a church, uh, but they serve different functions for the edification of the church body. In other words, the church needs both, and the church needs both to do what they need to do. So uh, let's understand they are distinct in both their qualifications and their functions. So we'll start with deacons. Deacons are to assist the pastors in serving the needs of the body. This is why the office of a deacon was created. You go back to Acts chapter 6, where we see the office of a deacon get created. The Bible says in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews. I know that never happens in any other church, but it happened then. And it happened because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. The twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give, the apostles will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So we see the situation. The reality is the pastor can't care for it all. And so God led for the office of the deacon to be created, to come alongside the church body at the direction of the pastors uh, to do what was needed so that the pastor would be able to give himself to really what mattered most to what God had called him to, the word of God and prayer. And so the word deacon, it literally means a servant. It kind of gives the indication of one who stirs up dust, speaking to the diligence that they are supposed to give themselves to in their ministry. And it is a role of leadership and influence, uh, but biblically, it really isn't a role that holds a lot of authority in the church. And so we, we contrast that or we compare that uh, with the office of the elder. Now, the office of the elder, this is one of the terms that the Bible uses to describe the pastor or pastors in the church. Now, elder, it is a general term, and it means an older person. So we do have elders uh, in the church. Uh, Maverick, come on, man. But here we're talking about a specific or technical office being considered. 
you look at verses like 1 Timothy 1 and verse number 5, or Titus, sorry, Titus 1, verse 5. Paul says to Titus, For this cause I left thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that were wanting, and ordain elders in every city, as I had appointed thee. Who do we ordain? We, we ordain ministers, pastors, preachers, things like that. So, uh, here we have a technical term for a pastor. Often in the Bible, you find it in the plural form, which is, I think, important to note. Uh, James chapter 5, we see one of those. It says, is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So the term elder, it literally means an aged one. And what it does is it emphasizes the maturity and wisdom required in their leadership. And so when the Bible says that the pastor can't be a novice, this is along those same lines. There's a certain level of wisdom, a certain level of maturity that is required. And how many of us recognize that's just not an age thing? You can have old fools as well as you can have young people. I shouldn't say fools. You can have old people who are foolish just like you can have young people who are <laughs> foolish. And you can have younger people who are seasoned just as you can have older people who are seasoned. Now, the Bible does have several terms for pastor. Um, they describe different aspects of the ministry. Elder meaning the wisdom, the maturity. We see also the word bishop, meaning the administrative leader or the overseer. Uh, we see pastor, which refers to being a shepherd or having a knowledge and caring for one's people. And it's not uncommon to find two or three of these words all in the same context referring to the office of pastor. If you look in like 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, the elders which are among you, there's that word, I exhort, Peter says, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Look what he says. He says, feed the flock of God, the flock of God. What does that refer to? Pastoring, uh, which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. What does oversight refer to? That idea of being a bishop or an overseer, not by constraint, but willingly, not by filthy lucre, but of ready mind. We also see all three terms used in Acts 20 when Paul refers to the elders at Ephesus. You see it there in verse 17. You look at 28, uh, and it says, Take heed to the flock, again, which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers. So with the pastor or elder, uh, they have a weight of leadership and authority in the church as an under-shepherd of the chief shepherd. If we go back to 1 Peter chapter 5, in the very next verse, verse 3, it talks about not being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. Uh, the pastors are to set a leading example. Uh, so, when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Uh, Timothy refers in 1 Timothy 5 verse 17 to elders that rule well. So uh, both uh, deacons and elders, they have positions of leadership and influence, uh, but the position of pastor or elder uh, has a, a, a context more of that leadership and authority role. Now, another difference is in their qualifications. You go to 1 Timothy 3, there's one huge difference between bishops or pastors and deacons, and that is pastors are required to be apt to teach but deacons are not. And so in order to consider a man for the office of a bishop, an elder, a pastor, he has to be able to teach God's word. If he does not have the spiritual gift of teaching, then God didn't equip him to be a pastor. 
Uh, the deacons don't bear that responsibility or that, that requirement because theirs is more of a support role for the pastors. Now, you look at 1 Timothy 3, here's what you're going to find. God has extremely high standards for both the pastors and the deacons, and this is not a mistake. Because God will hold both offices to a high standard in final judgment. So much so that James warns us in James 3. He says, my brethren, be not many masters. Or don't be really eager to get into roles where you have leadership and authority. Why? Knowing that we, we who bear leadership roles, shall receive greater levels of condemnation or, or greater scrutiny by the Lord Jesus at judgment. Now... I'll pause here before we move on to say we have great deacons here. Yeah, amen. Mr. Bill Brown, I think he's out keeping us safe tonight on security. He's the president of our deacon board. Uh, Brother Frank Wiesner, he is the treasurer uh, and a member of the board. Brother John Pocock has served for many years. Brother Jack Foster, Brother Nate Griner, Brother Sam Mendoza, Brother Jeremy Bowling is our board secretary. Uh, these men are a tremendous blessing to me as pastor. And they are a tremendous blessing to this church. I just made them sit through an hour and 40-minute meeting. So, uh, you know, they, they are willing to do the hard things. Amen. But here's the thing. The church cannot operate like she should unless the deacons serve as they should. And I thank God that we have men who do it and do it well. And God has blessed us with a wonderful pastoral team as well. Brother Dan Utley preached this morning. Didn't he do a good job? That's a difficult passage. And Brother Dan Utley, in love, he said, thus saith the Lord. And God's given us Brother Dan. God's given us Brother David as a part of our pastoral team. Brother Josh Middall, Brother Charles Kaufman, uh, Brother Belcher. Where are you at tonight, Brother Belcher? Back there. What a wonderful team that God has brought together uh, to help pastor and care for this church. We're not a perfect bunch. But I think God has really brought together men who love the Lord and love his people. And so that, in somewhat short form, is the difference between an elder and a deacon. Okay, fantastic. That's question number one. Question number two is, do the angels have free will? How could Lucifer rebel if they do not? Okay, so if you haven't figured it out already, I am dealing with some things that are a little more technical before I lose you all. So, um, so we're going to look at this. Do the angels have free will? The simple answer is yes. God has gifted his creation with free will in order that we might choose to love and honor him with the life that he gives us. Angels are spiritual beings created by God. They are of a higher order than humanity, meaning they're faster, stronger, smarter, all those things than us. And angels have free will, uh, which is, uh, angels do have free will, which as the question suggests, is why Lucifer could choose to rebel. So let's understand this. In Satan's rebellion, we see the free will of all of the angelic hosts on display. God chose not to give us a ton of the dirty details, but what we do know is that Satan chose to rebel against God and was cast out of heaven. Again, we don't know all, but here's what we do know. It seems clear from Scripture that one-third of the angels chose to rebel against God with Satan, and two-thirds of the angels chose to stay with God. Revelation 12, we see this pictured here beginning in verse 3. The Bible says, There appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his horns. We know that the dragon is the devil. The Bible says, And his tail drew a third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to earth. 
And the dragon which stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her uh, as soon as it was born. And we can get into all that stuff another time. But we seem to learn from Scripture that a third of the angels chose to go with Satan. A third of the angels chose to stay with the Lord. Now, what we find is because of the angel's choice, we have fallen angels and we have holy angels. Jude 6 is one of the many verses that references the fallen angels, some of which are kept in chains in darkness, some of which torment mankind, um, but we have these two degrees of angels. Now, here's where the confusion comes in, is because we have a hard time not understanding did the angels choose to rebel against God. We have a hard time understanding what free will is. When I think free will, do you know what I tend to think? It means I have the ability to do what I want. Isn't that what we think free will is? But you don't have the ability to do what you want. Free will does not mean that I have the ability to do whatever I want. Picture this. You come to a bridge, what can you choose to do? I can choose to walk across it. I can choose to run across it if it's a part of a 5K. I can choose to turn around. I can choose to go a different way and see if there's some other way to get across. There's a lot of things I can choose to do. You know what I can't choose to do? Fly. No matter how hard Alan Holmes flaps his wings, he's not going to fly across the bridge. You know what else Alan Holmes isn't going to do? Do the whole open like this wormhole and just teleport myself to the other side. I, I do not have the capacity to do whatever I want to do. That is not free will. So a better understanding of free will is this. That we are free, but we are, our free will is free within the boundaries of our nature. And so I'm free to do a lot of things, but I can't fly. I can't live underwater like a fish. I can't levitate. I, I can't will myself to perfect health. I can't make myself right with God. Think about it this way. Does God have free will? But can God sin? No, God, God cannot choose to sin. Why? Because what is his nature? He is holy and he is righteous. And God cannot, will not violate his nature. And so when you think about free will, you have to think about it in terms of, uh, in organisms or an individual's nature. You must consider the nature of character when considering free will. So what, what, is the free, what is the nature of angels? Clearly, every angel had the capacity to choose to worship God or war against him. Clearly. Every angel made their choice at Satan's rebellion. And what we seem to gather from Scripture, that when they made their choice, that their nature was confirmed around their choice. That those who chose to stay with God, their nature, they were holy angels. And they are free in that nature. Those who chose to war against God are confirmed in that nature. And now they are free to war against God for all eternity. You say, well, that's not fair. No, no, no. All choices have consequences. You know why you're not watching TV right now? Because you chose to come to church. That's why. You, you had to say, well, I'm going to give up all this other stuff so I can do X, Y, Z. Choices have consequences. And so those angels who chose to worship had their nature confirmed in holiness. Those who chose to war against God had their nature confirmed in their unrighteousness. And now they are forever free to exercise their will within their nature. So, think about it in terms of humans. Alright? Will you and I be able to sin when we get to heaven? 
No, but does that mean we don't have free will? No, we do have free will. But what's going to happen? All right, so right now, we're free from the penalty of sin, amen? As Christians, we're free from the power of sin, amen? Uh, But not free from the presence of sin. And I'm not free from this nasty, wicked flesh, am I? In fact, so much so that Paul said in Romans 17, look at verses 18 and 19. He said, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good? (laughs) Paul said, I find not. For the good that I would do, I do not. But the evil that I would not, that I do. You see, even though we're saved, even though we're sanctified, we still got this nasty flesh. But you know, one day when we die, our will, our volition, our nature will be confirmed in righteousness. When I die and go to heaven, there will be no more weakness. There will be no more wicked, unregenerate flesh. And you know what? I will be confirmed in Christ's righteousness. Those who reject Christ this side of heaven will be confirmed in their own unrighteousness. So much so. Look what this Bible verse says. Revelation 22. This is after the final judgments. Look what it says. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He which is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. You see, when we come to eternity, guess what happens? We are confirmed in the nature that we have chosen. Either to worship Christ or war against Christ. And we will have that forever when we die. And apparently that event for angels happened at Satan's rebellion. You think about it this way. Well, I can't sin in heaven, so I don't have free will. No, think about it this way. I will finally be fully free to do what I really want to do. And that is love and serve God with all my heart. I will finally be free. So, do angels have free will? Yes. Does free will mean the capacity to do whatever we want? No. No. Come on, a little more than that. I know it was long and technical. Does it mean we have the capacity to do whatever we want? No. No. So free will is the capacity to do what I want within the boundaries of my nature. And the angels have that to this day. Okay, fantastic. All right. Question number three. Jeremiah 17.9 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Why then is the heart so often used to symbolize love? So let's look at Jeremiah 17, 9 together. There the Bible says this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And I think in order to do this, we have to make a distinction between the part and the problem. So the heart, and we're not talking about the physical organ here. The heart in scripture is, and really in culture, is considered to be the center of a person. It is the seat, the source of who you are. It is the emotional, mental, spiritual center of you. It is the real you. Uh, That's why the Bible says in Proverbs 4 and verse number 23 that we need to keep or guard our heart with all diligence for out of it are the issues of life. Jesus talked about how our words, they're drawn from our heart. Heart, And we could go on and on and on with examples. So when the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about the seat or source of who we really are. From your heart flows your hopes, your dreams, your fears, your feelings. It is the real you. How you really feel, how you really think. And that's why we use phrases like, I love you with all of my heart. Or we talk about, we need to get to the heart of the matter. Because it it means that core, that true substance. So, since the heart is so often used as a symbol of the seat of our emotions, it makes sense 
that the heart is used as a symbol for love. Because love is one of the most powerful possessions and expressions we can have. So much so that the greatest commandment is what? Matthew 22, verse 37, that we need to love the Lord our God with all our heart. God starts right there. Love him with all our heart. And so since love is one of the most powerful possessions and expressions that we have, in the, I'm going to move this so I can see everybody's face. Uh, in the human race, uh, it makes sense then that the heart has become a, a symbol for love. But what Jeremiah is doing here is he's drawing a distinction between that, that real innermost part of us and, and the problem that we face. He's drawing a distinction between the sinner, the source of true self, and the fact that you and I, in our heart, our heart is, is, experiences the curse just like every other aspect of our being, just like every other aspect of creation. That our sinful nature even touches our heart. We're not basically good on the inside and we struggle with things on the outside. No, we're corrupt from the inside yeah. and that, that, that has filtered into every aspect of life. And so James is pointing out, or, or Jeremiah is pointing out, that the that, that, that inner part of us, yes, it's the source of who we really are, but, but boy, it's corrupt. It is corrupt. It is fallen and it is corrupt. That my heart, yes, it's the seed of my hopes and dreams, my feelings and fears, but it leads me to want to do things that are unwise. It leads me to want to do things that are sinful. My heart, it leads me to want things that are unhealthy. Boy, that's true every time I go to a cookout. I'm sorry you had to see that, Greg. It leads me to things that are untrue. How many out there, how many people out there believe, a, believe the lies of the devil? Yeah. Believe the lies of the world and think they're good people because of it? It leads me to want things, feel things that are unhealthy, untrue, and even ungodly. See, the heart of man is a strong feeler, but it is a terrible leader. We as Christians are not to be led by our hearts. This whole Disney garbage of follow your heart, that's bad news. And it is sinful for a Christian. Why? Because what are we to be led by? The Word of God and the Spirit of God. Mm -hmm. Ephesians 5.18 tells us not to be drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but to be filled with the Spirit. Psalm 119.105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It ought not be, how do I feel about this? It ought to be, what does God say about this? And so that's why there's really no conflict here. Jeremiah is just drawing the distinction between that part of us and the fact that even that part of us is fallen and sinful. You know, Pastor, that also brings up the point that I think the world today is following their emotions. Yep. And that is just train wreck city. Yep. So we can't live our life by our emotions. Yep. Yes, emotions are part of our life. Yes, God gave us emotions. But you cannot live your life by your emotions. Because if you live your life by emotions, one minute you're up, one minute you're down. One minute you're on fire, one minute you're not. You cannot do that. You have to have principles in your life. This is why you do what you do, because what the Bible says, and then it doesn't matter whether you're tired or whether you're sick or whether you don't feel like going to church. You do the things because it's right to do. Amen. So I praise God that we have those principles. Um, I do have one question. Yes, sir. Why is the globe upside down? I have no earthly idea. Maybe because we're just, supposed to turn the world upside down I just, for Jesus. I just noticed that. And I'm like, the globe is upside down, and it's driving me bananas. I just had to ask. My wife is so embarrassed right now. Sorry. <laughs> now you know a little bit of our household. Now you know a little bit. 
Okay, question number four. And what is a wormhole? Wormhole is kind of like that space travel thing where you're here one minute and it's kind of like teleportation. Okay, like tractor beam thing. Okay. Yeah, why not? Tractor or tractor four. Question four. Tractor four. Why does God let Satan loose for a short time after the millennial reign of Christ? Is it a test of angels or those born in the millennial kingdom? That's a good question. So the verse in question, Revelation 20, verse number 7. Uh, and when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. Uh, and uh, we see there the final rebellion of Satan. Um, with this, uh, it's important to note it's not a test for the angels. The angels have made their choice. Mm-hmm. The angels have made their choice. We've covered that. It is a test for those born in the millennial kingdom. So what we find in this context of Revelation 20, Satan has been bound for a thousand years. This is the thousand years that Jesus rules and reigns from Jerusalem. Revelation 20 verses 1 through 6 give us that. Uh, We see at the beginning an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold upon the dragon. Remember we talked about him earlier. That old serpent which is the devil and Satan and bound him a thousand years. Well, you can uh, scroll through verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. We see that he's, no, he's in the pit. He's no longer deceiving the nations. Um, we find that verses 4, 5, and 6, that Jesus, he sets up his kingdom. We rule and reign with him. It's wonderful. It's great. Um, and uh, we get to the end. We find that at the end of the thousand years reign of Christ, that Satan is loosed for a final rebellion. And the, the question of why is a legitimate question. I mean, if you have the old dog down, why you let him up again? And uh, I, I do think there's a very, very logical and uh, important answer. Uh, and I think the suggested answer is right on track. And that it is a test of those born in the millennial kingdom. The thousand years Christ rules and reigns, uh, life will continue. Uh, those who lived through the tribulation will go with Christ into the kingdom. Uh, they will marry, have children, who will marry and have children. A lot can happen in a thousand years, right? Uh, a lot can happen. You think about our country is only 300 some odd years old. A lot can happen in a thousand years. What was it, Barry? About 250. That was yeah. bad math on my part. I was rushing things. Our, our country's, yeah, 250. That's, that's right. Uh, and so that's only a quarter of the millennium. And you think about uh, when people live a lot longer and uh, Jesus is ruling and reigning. So a lot of people will be born. The population will increase. Uh, and it is a test of those born during the millennial reign of Christ. Uh, so we have a thousand years of people ruled by the righteous Son of God. For a thousand years, people have been able to see with their own eyes the love, grace, glory, power, holiness, might of Jesus Christ. So it's not a matter of whether or not these people have had access to the plan of salvation. No, God's salvation himself has been ruling physically from Jerusalem. No one is ignorant of this uh, fact. But the problem is, people are still people. And scripture is clear that some will still choose to reject Jesus. Though they can see him, though they experience personally being ruled by him, some will still reject Jesus. And they'll still choose sin. And when the opportunity comes, some will still choose Satan. You know what that teaches us? That teaches us the most dangerous enemy we face is not Satan. And is not the world. Because you see, Satan will be locked up. And the world, the world will be governed by Jesus. Not an American president, 
not a Russian, not a Chinese. The world will be governed by Jesus, and he will rule with a rod of iron. And so it's not that Satan made me do it, and it's not that, well, I, I just lived in a bad culture. No, 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 no. You see, the greatest enemy we face is not Satan, and it's not society. The greatest enemy we face is self, is my own stinking self. James puts it this way in James 1, verse 13 and 14. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But what does it say? Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. And so the devil is released. And I'm going to tell you, he's not recruiting rebels. He's revealing rebels. Mm. The devil's not making them do it. They are what they have chosen to be. And the Bible says that the devil will uh, rebel. He will lead a multitude in rebellion. And before we move into the new heaven and new earth, you know what's happening? God is one more time making everybody choose. Are you going to worship me? Or are you going to war against me? All must choose Jesus. No one slides into heaven. Not because you were born into a certain family, a certain nationality, or a certain time period. Nobody slides into heaven. So, let me give you a little note on the rebellion. Satan gathers the rebel hearts. They attack King Jesus at Jerusalem. Let's look at that. Verse 7. And when the thousand years, verse 7 through 10 if we could, Don. And when the, verse 7 if we could start there. Uh, and when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. And look what happens. And shall go to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth. Gog and Magog to gather them together to battle. And the number of them is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breath of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about in the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. See, here's the thing. No matter what the devil tells you, he don't win. That's the spoiler alert. Somehow, after everything they had experienced, the devil still convinced the number of people as of the sand of the sea that he was going to win. Spoiler alert, the devil doesn't win. Sin doesn't win. Sin doesn't bring you happiness or blessing. Jesus wins. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, so now we're ready for the lightning round. We're going to put five minutes on the clock. Now here's the disclaimer. A number of these questions came from our young people. So some of them you're like, huh? But these came from the pure hearts. Well... We already talked about the heart being deceitful and desperately wicked. These came from the desperately wicked hearts of your children and grandchildren. And so I, I wanted everybody to know that their questions mattered. Amen? And so we are handling them all. All right. So here we go. These are the desperately wicked questions we're going to get into right now. Five minutes on the clock. Five minutes up there. Uh, he's going to get the... Okay. Does it end on the, when I start or when I'm done with the question? When, when you're done. When you're done. Right. I need as much time as possible. You know me. All right. Here we go. Question number one. What is your favorite book of the Bible? All right. Simply put, favorite Old Testament book is Daniel. I love Daniel because Daniel uh, was tasked with standing for God and making a difference in a very dark place. Reminds me a lot of today. Amen. And it shows that the call of God, the cost of following God, and the faithfulness of God to his people gives us some really cool prophecy. Love Daniel in the Old Testament. New Testament. I love the Gospel of John. Why? 
because it tells us about Jesus. Amen. It contains my life verse, John 3, 30. Uh, he must increase, but I must decrease. Question number two, what is your favorite color? Blue, subject to change. <laughs> number three, what is your favorite flavor of pie? In no particular order. And you got to, like, if I keep turning around, it's because they didn't give me a timer there. So you guys know how much time I have, but I don't. Favorite flavor of pie in no particular order. Apple, peach, chocolate, pecan, just no peanut butter. Amen. Just no peanut butter. Oh, there it is. Cool. I do have one. All right, continue. Number four, do you like mint chocolate chip ice cream? Yes, and cookie dough, and strawberry, and anything with caramel in it, and the stuff with brownie chunks, and vanilla, just no peanut butter, and, and for the love of all, that's holy, no ranch. So I brought this in. Sometimes preachers say, preachers say things, and you're like, oh, that's not true. Things couldn't be that wicked in the world. Ranch ice cream. They make it. And someone had the audacity to bring me some. The abomination exists. Please don't ever do this again. Next question. All right, question number five. What does historical divisions B.C. and A.D. stand for? All right, there's a little bit of confusion surrounding this, so let me give you a couple of definitions. B.C. stands for before Christ. A.D. stands not for after death. There's a lot of people who think it means after death, but it does not refer to the death of Christ. It's a Latin phrase. It means anno domini, which means in the year of our Lord. So A.D. actually refers to the year that Jesus Christ was born. Why do we do that? Because Jesus is the turning point for all human history. His life is the focal point for for human existence. Now, let me point this out before we go on. You know, there is a secular movement out there today that's trying to replace B.C. and A.D. They use uh, the the notations B.C.E. and C.E., which stands for before the common era and the common era. Now, let me ask you, why do you think they would do something like that? To remove Christ. You know, they can try. But here's the thing. They're not going to be able to change the fact that Jesus Christ, when he came, it changed everything. When he came, Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord, he changed everything. By the way, when he comes back, he will change it all again too. Amen? Amen. Go ahead. Let's keep going. We know your opinion on cats. What do you think about kittens? So like when I was talking about hearts being deceitful and desperately wicked, I wasn't much lying. So here's the reality. When it comes to kittens, what are my thoughts about kittens? Honestly, I try not to. I try not to. Because here's the thing. Oh, man. Kittens can be cute, but the Bible brings clarity to even matters of this. Look with me at 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14. The Bible says this. And no marvel... For Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. But I promise you, in the end, the cat comes out. So be not deceived. Be not deceived. Keep going. Oh, boy, we better. Number seven, are you going to get your children a dog? No. They can get one for themselves when they leave my house. I would like to leave them things to look forward to in life. And a pet will be one of them. Number eight. This is, I'm not sure this is a typo. What are you going to get by yourself? Is it a go-kart? A or go-kart. A go-kart. All right. A go-kart. And? When am I going to buy myself a go-kart? I'm not. 
because I want to get my pilot's license one day. Oh, wow. And okay. we got to save it all for the pilot's license. And he did it. Now, here's the deal. We got 30 seconds. Okay. <laughs> Christopher and Maddie, we're going on vacation for two weeks. We need someone to watch Sophie. Is that not a compromise? She's housebroken, and she loves to give kisses, and she doesn't like ranch dressing. Oh, well, if she doesn't like ranch dressing. That's a lie. I have no okay. idea. She eats anything. So, all right. Okay. Here we go. Christopher, ready? Hey, before, oh. can I interject? Sure. So sure. not everybody's questions are getting answered tonight. I got a lot more than 16 questions. So some of the questions uh, are going to get their own sermons, like whole sermons. Like I got one here. Uh, over the last decade or so, a, a skyrocketing increase in the number of people identifying as a part of the LGBT community, as well as increased pressure on our, our children. So clearly the Bible is opposed to to this. Uh, so the question is, what is the church's response to these trends in our culture? We're going to do a whole sermon on this. We're going to do it on a Wednesday night. I will warn you ahead of time, and we will have children's uh, ministry available so that the littlest among us can uh, be safe and we can talk uh, openly about our church and our families, a biblical response because uh, you've got to bury your head in the sand to see that it is not, uh, they're coming after, they're coming after everything they can. And so uh, we're going to talk about that in its own sermon, and I'll give you an update, and like I said, we'll have something for the kids. I also got three or four questions in regards to the na- nature of angels, uh, demons, uh, the, the spiritual realm that exists uh, around us that God has created and what that looks like. And so we'll, we'll, talk, we'll talk a service on that as well. Uh, those of you who maybe additionally didn't get your questions, depending on what I've got, I may do one more or I may just get you answers to your questions. But thank you to everybody who submitted questions for Q&A this year. Question five. What happens to our pets if the whole family is taken up in the rapture? I'm just reading the questions. So. Well, the question, I think the idea is, like, who's going to care for them? And the simple answer is not you. Not you. <laughs> if you are saved, you know what the Bible teaches us? The Bible teaches us that when Jesus comes for his bride, we're gone. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and so there's not going to be time for you to you know make sure the self-dispensing feeder is ready to go and the litter box is clean i mean it's not going to be time so you're gone uh and the pets are left behind uh first thessalonians chapter four uh we we see that as well if we believe that jesus died and rose again even so them also which sleep in jesus will god bring with him uh for this we say unto you by the word of the lord that we which are alive and remain in the coming of the lord shall not prevent them or go before them which are asleep For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up. And so we got to be ready. we got to be ready because God's not going to put it on your Google calendar. He's not going to give you a a two-week notice. Uh, When he comes, he comes, and he's going to catch us away. And so 
you know, I, believe it or not, I, I've had honestly serious conversations about this because people want to be good stewards of their animals and want to see their animals cared for. So, um, you know, maybe it's uh, pet godparents. Maybe it's another reason to be kind to your unsaved neighbors. I mean, I don't know. Somebody take care of Fifi when you're gone. But uh, um, I guess at the end of the day, it's not you. And so uh, if you want to make arrangements, make arrangements now because Jesus is coming soon. <laughs> Moving on. Yep. <laughs> at what point? At what point? You guys stop looking at me that way. At I didn't po- ask these questions. <laughs> I'm just answering them. At what point do we go to heaven? All right. So I want to confuse you a little bit with this. All right. I want to make you think. Timeline is very late, well laid out in Scripture. We go to heaven when we die. Second Corinthians five and verse number eight. Paul says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Um, what do we find? First Thessalonians 4.14, we just read it. Uh, when Jesus comes again, who's he bringing with them? Those that sleep or have died in Jesus, he's going to bring with them. So those who have died in Christ, where are they now? They are with Jesus. And so the Bible is clear. When we die, we go to heaven. But here's the reality. You don't get to stay there. And that's where maybe I'll confuse you a little bit. So, but I want to answer it. I don't want to leave you confused. So we'll eventually get our glorified bodies at the rapture. We get our glorified bodies before then, those who've gone on before they, they, they live in heaven in like a spiritual state until the rapture where they get their glorified eternal bodies. And then we get to live in heaven with our glorified eternal bodies in that spiritual place called heaven for the seven years of the tribulation. Now, after the seven years of the tribulation, what do we do? We leave heaven to do what? Come and rule and reign with Christ on earth uh, during his millennial reign. Revelation 5 verses 9 and 10 tell us that. Uh, They sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us. So we we see the redeemed has redeemed us to God by by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Look what it says. And has made us unto our God kings and priests. And we shall reign where? On earth. So after the seven year tribulation, guess where we don't get to, we're not anymore. We're not, we're not living in heaven. We are reigning with Christ on earth. Then following the millennial reign in the timeline, you know what God does? He creates a new heaven and a new earth. New Jerusalem comes down and, and the spiritual, the physical, they're joined together in perfect union. And I want you to notice what the Bible says in Revelation 21. I want you to notice the emphasis here. John says, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is where? With men. With men. And he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. So what happens? After we rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years, the Bible says God recreates everything. A new heaven and a new earth. And I believe scripturally our primary dwelling place will be on the new earth with God. And so this spiritual place we call heaven, when we die we go there. And we'll live there during the tribulation. 
But after that, we'll be ruling and reigning with Christ in various and sundry fashions. And then we'll be dwelling, he'll be dwelling with us on the new earth for all eternity. So when do you go to heaven? When you die. But if you really want to confuse people, let them know you don't get to stay there. Um, I'm here to edify. Let's build up. What or who governs how often we take the Lord's Supper? I noticed how you just, no comment there, move right into the next question. <laughs> By the way, wherever Jesus is, that's where heaven is. And so if you want to look at it that way, we'll be in heaven forever. Yeah, amen. Amen. So I, I don't really want to confuse people. Uh, who or what governs how often we take the Lord's Supper? Uh, simply, uh, church leadership, uh, myself, we set it on the calendar Uh, When you look at the Lord's Supper in Scripture, Jesus ordains the Lord's Supper for us to remember his death. Luke 22, 19 and 20, we see this. And he took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Verse 20, Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. So we see Jesus ordains it for us, tells us to do it, and it is in remembrance of his death. But as far as how often we do it, the biblical teaching for how often we do it is simply as often as we do it. You look at 1 Corinthians 11, for instance, beginning in verse 23. Paul says, For I have delivered of the Lord that which I also delivered, for I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. That the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. To the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye, look what it says next, as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. And then he gives a summary statement. He says, For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. And I believe that the Bible is intentionally broad here uh, for how often do we do it? As often as we do it. You know what the Bible puts a great deal more emphasis on? Not how often we do it, but how our hearts are to be when we do it. That's why in the very next verse, verse 27 and forward, it says this, Whosoever shall eat of this bread and drink of this cup unworthily, meaning not taking into account uh, what, what, the, what, what Christ has done and what he calls us to, shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation or destruction to himself, not understanding or discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, Paul even says, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Sleep has the idea of they're dead in Christ. It's a serious matter. So far more important to God than how often we do something is our heart when we do it. Now, different churches... Do it different ways. Schedule it different ways. Some churches do it every Sunday. How many have been a part of a church that has done it every Sunday? A handful of us in here have been a part of a church that has done it every Lord's Day. Some do it every Sunday. Some do it every month. Some I've seen do it every fifth Sunday. When there's a fifth Sunday in a month, it's always Communion Sunday. Some do it once a quarter. Some tie it to specific holidays. 
Uh, here at Harvest, what we try to do is at least once every other month, plus Easter, Thanksgiving, Christmas Eve. And so that allows us to take communion nine or ten times a year. And so that's something we, we try to make sure that we do and, and do it often um, as the Lord leads. And so that's kind of what we, we look to do here at Harvest, if you've ever wondered how we schedule that. Uh, different churches also serve it different ways. Uh, some have church leadership serve it. Uh, some churches put like stations in the aisles for members to serve themselves. Uh, some practice closed communion where it is only uh, church members in good standing who can participate in communion. Some practice close communion, which are those who are of like faith are welcome to, to join. What do we do at Harvest? We are served by our deacon board, uh, and it's a beautiful way that they visibly help serve the body. And we hold close communion, meaning those of like faith uh, who are right with the Lord are welcome to join us for communion. But all the details vary church by church, and really rightly so. The Bible has intentionally silent on these matters, and so what God is far more concerned about is what's going on in here uh, when we do this. All right. This, before we give our last one, I will say that I love how we do communion here at Harvest. I like the pastor often says it is joyful but not juvenile. And I like the seriousness of it and I like the way he ministers of it. And I really appreciate that. All right. Believe it or not, we're down to question number eight. And remember, this will be recorded and will be up on the website so you can go back and uh, uh, re-listen to it and maybe share it with a friend. Question number eight. Why did Jesus address Peter as Satan in Matthew 16, 23? I figured we end with a fun one tonight. So let's look at the verse, Matthew 16, 23. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense unto me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. These words were spoken by Jesus to Peter. They certainly seem direct. Um, they could even, to some, seem harsh. I mean, Peter wasn't a bad guy, right? I mean, in fact, Peter was one of Jesus' most devout disciples. Peter had just proclaimed in front of everybody that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. I mean, you go back, what is it, verse 15 of that chapter. Jesus asked them, Whom say ye that I am? In verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ. The son of the living God. So not even 10 verses ago. I mean, this man was doing great things, right? So he went from doing great things to getting a great rebuke. Um, but here's what we need to understand. What's going on here? Jesus' rebuke of Peter. Uh, he is rebuking Peter in response to Peter's rebuke of Jesus. You see, the verses in between where Peter had pronounced, You're the Christ. The son of the living God and, and where Jesus rebukes him. Uh, Jesus had told his disciples that he was going to go to Jerusalem. That he was going to be taken of the el chief priests and the elders. That he was going to be crucified. And that he was going to rise again. But Peter, when Jesus started talking about how he was going to die, Peter had other ideas. We find those ideas in verses 21 and 22. We see him from that time forth, Jesus began to show unto his disciples how he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things with the chief priests and uh, elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, 
Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. So, Peter wanted Jesus not to die on the cross. No, Peter had other plans. What did Peter want? We know Peter wanted Jesus to start his earthly kingdom now. Peter wasn't interested in the cross. Peter was interested in the crown. And so Jesus rebuked him. Because in doing what Peter did, Peter was unwittingly speaking for or parroting Satan. He was using Satan's talking points. See, Peter's mind was not on the plan of God. Peter's mind was on the plan of Peter. Peter's mind was not on the will of God. It was on the will of Peter. It was on the purpose of Peter, the perspective of Peter. And honestly, Peter probably thought he was protecting Jesus. No, 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 Jesus, come here. No, no, no. This, this is not going to happen to you. If Jesus hadn't cut him off, I wouldn't, I'd be willing to wage that maybe his next line was, you know what, Jesus, we got your back. We never let him take you, Jesus. We got your back. Peter probably thought he was protecting Jesus. But what he was actually doing, he was inadvertently doing the same thing Satan had tried to do when he tempted Jesus. Remember back Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. The devil took Jesus up to an exceeding high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and said what? All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. See, Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. You can have the kingdom now. No cross required. No cross, just a crown. And so Peter, whether he realized it or not, was parroting the talking points of Satan. And Jesus really was calling out Peter. He was calling him out uh, in the name of the one whose virtues, whose values, whose perspectives he was identifying with. And now, you know, we do things like this from time to time, too. You know, I coach basketball, and if there's one thing that every kid loves to do, it's to chuck up three-pointers. I mean, kids who can't make one out of ten layups will love to show you how to shoot the ball from half court. Constantly. Constantly. That's what they want to do. They want to chuck up threes. I'm like, you're... Two foot tall and 35 pounds. You can't get it there. No, 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 I can't. They're chucking up threes. So you know what you do? Sometimes the kids chucked up 47 threes. It's like, all right, Steph Curry, knock it off. Steph Curry is the NBA player who actually makes all the threes. And so what do you do? You, 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 you use the name of the one they're identifying with. And so Jesus here looks at Peter and says, get thee behind me, Satan. You're not savoring the things of God. You're savoring the things of men. And so Jesus rightly rebukes Peter, pointing out that Peter was not valuing the things of God, but of men. And that in doing so, Peter was aligning himself with the views and values of Satan, whether he intended to or not. It's pretty binary here. You either share the views of God or you share the views of this fallen world. You're not doing your own thing. It's pretty binary. And so... What do we find here with Peter? Peter misunderstood suffering. Suffering was not the problem. Suffering was a part of the plan. The cross was a part of the plan. By the way, suffering is always a part of the plan for those who follow Christ. We know that all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Actually, right after, we looked at Matthew 16, 23, right? Sometimes we stop there. Look what Jesus said in 16, 24. If any man will come after me, let him do what? Let him deny himself, take up his cross, 
and follow me. For whosoever shall save his life shall lose it. Whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Jesus says, no, Peter, you got this thing all wrong. Suffering, even the suffering of Jesus was not the problem. It was a part of the plan. So what does this teach me tonight? It's our last question and we're closing. I think it reminds us yet again how much we need to guard our heart. Because our heart can turn in an instant. You, you realize Peter was three verses removed from Jesus saying, God has revealed this great truth to you. And God's going to take this truth and God's going to build his church. And Peter, you're going to be a part of it. He was like three verses away. And then Jesus had to say, get behind me, Satan. Boy, that's a pretty big 180. But boy, isn't that all of us? You better watch it when you're up on that mountain. Because it's real easy for you to come crashing down. So what does this teach us? It teaches us we got to guard our hearts because it can turn in an instant. What else did it teach us? Intentions. I think Peter's intentions were good. Intentions are not irrelevant, but they're cheap. Just because Peter had good intentions, he didn't get a pass. What, what if our good intentions came to pass? Every one of us would be fit. <laughs> Every one of us would be fit. We would be instrument playing. How many of us took an instrument as a child or an adult? We, we, we tried an instrument at one time or another. Yeah, be honest, be honest. Uh-huh. We would all be fit. Instrument playing multilingual geniuses. But intentions, while not irrelevant, are cheap. Understand, you don't get a pass with God just because you have good intentions. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. We, there's a big difference between intending to follow Jesus and taking up your cross. There's a big difference between understanding the value of spiritual things and truly valuing spiritual things. There's a big difference. So what does this teach us? It teaches us, number one, we've got to guard our heart. It teaches us, number one. Number two, that intentions, they're not irrelevant, but boy, they're cheap. Number three, boy, this is a big one. God's will may not always make sense to us. And God's will may not always feel good to us. But God's will is always good, acceptable, and perfect for us. You think of the cross. Even Jesus in the garden said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. It doesn't make sense to me why God would become man and then die. It doesn't make sense to me. I, but I'm glad he did. And here's the thing, God's will doesn't have to make sense and God's will doesn't have to feel good. But we by faith have to understand that God's will is good. And that God is good. And when we do that, we can follow the instructions in Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 where the Bible says, I beseech you therefore, brother, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your what? Reasonable. Yeah. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God.